Hey there, fellow naturalists and runners. Tigo Connor here, co-host of the Single Acorn Podcast. I've been training to break the 100-mile world record, well, technically a world best, for the last few months and really the last few decades. During the hundreds of hours and thousands of miles I've logged, putting in to reach this goal, I've had plenty of time to think about what it takes on the mental side to compete in endurance events. I'm still not even really sure I have a good answer to this. In this episode, Glenn takes us down to Brazil and guides us through the world of trance and meditation. Glenn and I also try to find some overlap between our two different worlds of research. We also talk about the endurance required for smallmouth bass during the nesting season, or migrating geese as they move to their winter haunts. This will be the last episode before my race at Six Days in the Dome. In the next episode, we'll relive the race. We won't relive all 11 or 12 hours of it, depending on how long it takes me, but we'll go through the lessons learned and all that. As part of the experience for training for this 100 miler, I wanted to run a jogathon type fundraiser for a program that's really near and dear to my heart, Junior Milers. I've been a volunteer coach for this Autumn Youth program for a couple years now, and I just, I love it. It's an amazing program that trains kids to run and gets them in shape to participate in the Vermont City Marathon Relay. All the participants in the program get free running shoes, instruction on running related topics, snacks during practice, t-shirts, and exposure to positive running role models. You can donate using the link in the show notes. And one of the cool things is Jogathon, so you can donate per mile that I run on world record pace. All right, that's it for now. Welcome to the Single Acorn Podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor. Do my antenna make me look fat? Is orange a slimming color on me? When winter flutters by and you feel yourself packing on the pounds, you might be tempted to wing it and go for the saccharine stuff. But for that long journey south, nothing's as sweet as the real deal. Flutter by Simple Syrup, the only sweetener fit for a monarch. All right, howdy listeners. Welcome to The Single Acorn. I am Glenn Adder, one of your co-hosts. I am a former cultural anthropologist. Just want to throw that out there because it might be relevant today as we talk about endurance, part of our season five topic on endurance. And I'm here with co-host and leading light of the single acorn, Tico Connor. <laughs> hey, Glenn. Famed educator, lovely man, role model, sex symbol, also um, endurance <laughs> I'm runner. I'm blushing. I'm, I'm blushing over here. <laughs> That's probably just the heat. It's about 100 yeah. degrees where we yeah. both are right now. Now, Teek, I know you're preparing for a giant 100-mile race, but I understand you also have a side, a side, a side gig, hustle. as it were, a side business Yeah, called Love Runs Deep, where you... <laughs> deliver long distance um, love messages to deep places like canyons so they'll endure forever. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about Love Runs Deep. Yeah, so uh, we we commission runners uh, across the country and they'll deliver missives into the abyss. Uh, and this is <laughs> our primary <laughs> clientele is for people who have been uh, jilted or scorned by a lover. And ah. yes, so they'll they'll uh, take all of their lovers' possessions and they'll pack them up into a little backpack, and then they'll hire one of our our Sherpas or uh, runners that'll run these down into the abyss to be forgotten forever. So, <laughs> well, so now all the possessions fit in a backpack. So is your clientele also mostly consists of um, people who have lovers who have very few possessions, or do you like, choose the possessions? Yeah, you you choose the size of the backpack. So you can do like a thirty liter <laughs> package, or like a fifty liter package, or the the grande, the seventy liter. Right, yeah, a different, I guess, at different rates. That makes yeah. sense. The scale. Yeah. Um, when you say the abyss, <laughs> do you mean? So I was under the impression they were to like, you know, remote canyons in Utah. But are you talking like the underwater? Are, are your runners actually running underwater into the watery abyss? 
Yeah, it's it's sort of a, a metaphor. Uh, so, well, I mean, I guess it's more geographically related. So if the abyss is a uh, giant sinkhole, if you're down in Florida, then <laughs> toss it in that abyss. If you're out in the canyons in Utah, yeah. So I see. So there's we don't want to constrain ourselves. Yeah. So the abyss could be there's many types types of abyss. Yeah. That also that seems very flexible. Yes. Unlike our runners, they are quite flexible. <laughs> our definition is quite flexible. I would think. It, well, we may get to this, but it seems like it would be good to be flexible as a runner as well. But you know more about this than I do. It depends on what kind of runner you are. Uh, a bunch of years ago, when I was living in New York City, I was going to the library in the Bronx uh, after work, and I was just like browsing through all the nature books, and I found this one that had this little chipmunk curled up on the cover of it, and oh, it was called. How could Win you resist that? Yeah, it was called Winter World by Baron Heinrich. I know and that I one. Yeah, and I read it, and I was like, this is amazing, and I wound up reading every one of his books, and uh, a little bit after that, I was uh, out in California, and I wound up finding another one of his books called Racing the Antelope, which is all about endurance and animals. It's an incredible book, and I don't what, what did you just say that sparked I was that? wondering if runners should be flexible, but oh, yeah, I, like, yeah. I like the direction yeah. you took and, this. And somewhere, somewhere in that book, because he is an incredible endurance athlete and at one point was, I think, the outright world record holder for the 50 mile and 100K and then uh, got broken, but he's still the master's record holder for it. He talks in there about how he doesn't stretch at all because he views his muscles as like a uh, rubber band. And if you stretch them too much, they might stay stretched. And <laughs> so it wasn't good for him. So I don't know if that's necessarily true, but for me, it was all the justification that I needed to, yeah, continue not stretching. stretching. But if I were a sprinter, uh, I would definitely want to. And I was in college, I was a steepler and I definitely should have been doing more stretching than I was so I could get over the barriers. Uh, okay, so for our listeners, we're not taking an yeah. official stand on this in terms of lawsuits <laughs> That's and right. so forth. Stretching That's right. may be good for you. Individual choice. Yeah. Wow. So you think Bernd Heinrich pictured himself like, you know, just having these sort of dangly legs, you know, if he stretched too much, like his legs would be a foot longer and his arms would just flop around and he would just kind of just ride around the pavement, pavement like an earthworm after in the rain or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I took that a little far with my imagination, but yeah, a little. I have never seen anyone's limbs stretch out like an overstretched rubber band from stretching. I mean, I think there's, you know, when your leg goes into extension, or say, say when you land, if you're landing uh, on the balls of your toes, then your tendons are taking a lot of that impact, and they are are storing a whole bunch of energy so that when you spring off of that foot that uh, energy is being released and so there is you know somewhat of an argument that like if your muscles are too tight and or sorry if they're too loose and you can oh then your stride at the edge of your stride you're not actually storing as much energy to then propel you off to the next step. I so see. there might be some validity to it. Uh, well, also, you know, holding the world record, the results kind of speak a little bit there. Well, I don't so, hold the world record. I, well, you do, but he did. He, he did. did, he did, yes, definitely. And still does, yeah. his masters, his idea, and yours. And you might soon. So, again, we're focusing on the mental side of endurance today, and we're going to, hopefully, listeners, get a little bit of a window into Teague's, Teague's mind, Teague's beautiful mind. <laughs> Um, but the definition of endurance ha has to another be with dark the... abyss. <laughs> you should deliver some love messages there. <laughs> Shorter. 
So I think, I think my understanding of if you look up different definitions of endurance, there's the mental side is sort of built in. It's like you, you undergo stress or strain without giving in. You persist, you withstand, you know, you move to the limit of your ability and you keep pushing and don't give up. Is that, is that sort of your definition of endurance or what would it be for you? Yeah, I mean, in our last episode, we were talking about the physical side of endurance and there are like prolonged exertions that organisms can do. But if it's just a physical component, then I don't think of it as endurance. I think that endurance is the brain or the or the brain's interaction with the physical body in these prolonged endurance activities or these prolonged exertions. Um, so there has to be some sort of mental component. And to do well in endurance events, you need to train the brain just as much as you need to train the body. So, yeah, I think you can't really separate the two. Okay, so willpower and effort are an equal part of endurance, so the physical side. And so you said you need to train the brain. What? I guess it's sort of general vague question for you is how do you train your brain to, to endure in, in the context of long distance running or, or in another context? What's your training on the mental side? You know, it's easier to think maybe in terms of, and a lot of the, the frontiers right now in ultra marathons and ultra endurance activities are on the mental training side of things. Um, but it's easy to think like, okay, if I am training for a marathon, then I need to do a bunch of workouts at my marathon pace. I need to uh, strengthen my skeletal system, my muscular system. I need to increase the number of capillaries that I have and all these like physiological and physical benefits that you get from training are sort of easy to understand and then with Is it i mean i didn't know about the capillaries you can just increase your capillaries yeah by, by just doing stuff yeah by just doing stuff okay <laughs> yeah. great good for our listeners want to know that yeah do stuff um, and increase your capillaries it might be a good bumper sticker or something. yeah i mean your your body's really good if it if you start devoting a lot more resources doing one thing, then your body is good at making adaptations to make it better at doing that one thing. So uh, if you are demanding a lot of oxygen to your leg muscles, then you will get increased capillary density in your leg muscles. Uh, and the same thing, if you're a rower, you're going to get a beefier upper body with higher capillary density uh, in your upper body. So depending on where, what muscles you're activating right. for this physical training. Yeah. Sort of like when I was in my thirties and I started napping a lot and I got really good at napping. I could just nap. Bam. Like that. Yeah. Similar. Yeah, you got... I think similar, similar Incre Increased napillary density. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, so then with the mental side of things, it, it, there's a passive element to training, right? So I just am coming off of my longest training block, and I peaked at 155 miles during a single week. And so there's a mental component to it where 10 years ago, if I told myself, okay, you're going to be running 155 miles this week, there's no way that I physically probably could have done it, but mentally it was so far beyond what was normal. And so part of my training for uh, ultra endurance is uh, just normalizing really, really high mileage, right? So that the thought of training 155, or I, I can't remember, I was like 125, 145, and then 155 three weeks in a row. And for me, it just became really normal. It was like, okay, I get up, I go for a run. Uh, I have the rest of my day. And then in the afternoon, I go for a second run. And it just became this mental thing so that now as I'm starting out, or 
I'm about to embark on this race, running 100 miles doesn't seem crazy. I've already run 100 miles at a single time. I've done all of these huge training blocks. I did back-to-back long runs, so 25 miles one day, 32 the next. And uh, so I'm training my brain to have different expectations of what's possible. And most of my running is at my 100-mile goal pace or faster. So all every time that I'm running, I'm like, okay, this is comfortable. So I'm training my body to sort of intuit what my pace is and to also feel really comfortable and relaxed running that goal pace. And to think that it's highly possible that I'll be able to sustain that for 100 miles. So there's part of that. One of the big problems in ultra endurance events is your ability to mentally focus or sustain your focus. And some there there's a, a app that you can I probably buy it. I don't know what it's called. Um, but basically, it, it's like that game set. Do you remember that yeah, game set? The I do. Card I game? know the game set. Yes. Okay. So what's the game? How do you play the game? Well, there's a bunch of cards and then they're laid out in an array. And you try to find either three cards that have all their attributes are the same or all their attributes are different. And while you're staring at it, usually a child nearby notices before you do. (laughs) Yeah. And then they grab the cards and then that process repeats. Yeah. So the cards have uh, like different numbers of squares, triangles, circles. Shapes, yeah. Shapes and then also colors. Colors, different fillings, fillings in the shapes. So this is kind of similar to that where, oh wait, I don't know why I'm describing it like this. I don't think it's actually... Like that's all right we may get a promotion you know from set for this from set uh, yeah yeah. Yeah. this podcast brought to you by set (laughs) (laughs) um yeah we were recording this in 1993 Uh, (laughs) they still sell it do they all right yeah it's out there um what I was thinking of is not that game set, but uh, a, a different game where or a different thing where like if you put in red letters the word blue and then you have to say the color of it. And then if you flash another one and the letters are in yellow and it says blue and you have to say the color, which is yellow, it's really tough to do. To go and back so, and forth. Yeah. And so if you do this task over and over and over again, then you become really mentally fatigued and then you can go out and do a workout or like this app allows you to do, you can do this while you're on a stationary bike and you're constantly having to press the screen and say like, this is the color yellow, this is the color blue. And you're doing this over and over and over again and it mentally burns you out. This last semester for me was pretty intense. I was teaching the equivalent of five classes online and I was just mentally exhausted all the time. And my training was really suffering because my brain was just totally fatigued. One of the actual benefits of that is that every time I went for a run, I was mentally exhausted. And so it's sort of mirroring the late stages of the race when you're mentally exhausted from concentrating on what your pace is, concentrating on where you are in relation to other people, trying to inhibit your excitement and enthusiasm and pace yourself. Um, You're trying to like squash your impulses to just go faster. (laughs) Uh, And so there's this like, and also uh, you're constantly doing this mental calculus, like, okay, I've run this far. I've run this fast. I can slow down this pace and still hit my goal time. If I keep doing, you know, miles at this pace, then I'll be able to finish at this time. And so you're constantly using brain power and it's exhausting. And so in practice, if you can mirror those experiences by 
doing workouts and doing long runs when you're mentally fatigued, then you'll be more able to cope with that. You can also drug yourself up and just take a bunch of <laughs> caffeine, which suppresses your uh, like adenosine levels and allows you to concentrate m- more effectively even when you're exhausted. So it's a legal drug for uh, running, but... Yeah. Are you planning? Are you packing some caffeine for your 100-mile yeah. world record? Yeah, definitely. I don't drink coffee normally or any, take any coffee or any caffeine. What is your caffeine, caffeine form in the race? What's the plan? It's like just straight coffee powder, just... Um, well yeah so i don't have i'll have a cup of coffee probably before the start of the race and then um i'm using untapped uh maple syrup products all right and that's right big big gratitude to them uh for hooking me up and they have some products that are infused with caffeine so i'll get it from just the intake of yeah sustenance that i get and maybe you know runners all over the world would be Using delicious caffeine-laden untapped maple syrup, maple sap. Yeah, definitely. Once you break the world record. So this is a a sidelight. Sorry, this isn't so much to do with endurance, but you mentioned that it's hard to regulate um, your pacing when you're overexcited. So when you're at a big race and like all the runners are there and like you're finally there after training for months, is that hard not to be too excited at that point? Is it? Because is it hard to to simulate that event? Because how would you simulate being that excited about something um, when when you're running? Do you imagine yourself like doing the race or? Yeah, 30 years of experience racing uh, and I'm still not super great at it. So I ran (laughs) the Chicago Marathon. I'm trying to think when it was. It was like 2014 or something. And uh, maybe it was later than that, 17. Um, And I was talking to my high school friend, uh, Andy, and he's a coach at our high school now. And I was like, Andy, you got any advice for me? I'm like super nervous. I'm really excited. I was in great shape going into the race. And uh, he was like, yeah, I dare you to go out at six minutes for your first mile. And my goal pace was like 520 to 525. He was like, if you start way slower than your goal pace, then you're not going to blow all that adrenaline that you have in that first mile. And I was like, there's no way I can go out in six minutes. <laughs> and uh, I didn't. I went out in 505 for my first mile. <laughs> and, uh, and then I backed off after that. But I wound up paying for it uh, later in the race. And I fell off pace, yeah, like miles. So is your plan in this race to go a little slower the first mile and then, and then save yeah. the adrenaline surge? I have the advantage in, the, in that one, uh, in the Chicago Marathon, I only got mile splits. I actually ran a race uh, a couple years after that, the Vermont City Marathon, and uh, for that one, I felt horrible. I actually was going to drop out, uh, or I wasn't going to race. I was just feeling so beat up and fatigued going into that race. And so the day of the race, I was like, you know what? I need to go out really, really slow because I just I want to finish the race. And I went up going out in 550, and then in that race, I went up having an excellent day, and I ran... Yeah, so your friend was I, right. The advice yeah, was my good. Was right. uh, yeah, I probably could have been a little you, bit more aggressive. But, do you think if he had double dared you, he would have done it? That he just single dared you? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you can't. Uh, what is you it? Triple dog double there? Or, du- or triple double dog, dog there? there? I mean, yeah. I think that's the real lesson of this. If you if you have good advice, at least make it a double dare. I mean, probably just triple dog dare it. What's the what dog was part? It in Christmas sto- no, Christmas story. You remember that? They you can't when he licks the pole. Like you can't I back down from a Double dog there? I think it's a double dog there. You know, it's funny. I've never, I mean, I know it's an iconic movie, and I've only, but I've only seen it in snippets. But almost always when I turn it on, like it would be on when I was 
younger and it would be the pole licking like the kid's tongue would be stuck to the pole like that would yeah. be in the background so i started having dreams <laughs> yeah. about it a little bit i basically yeah. took you know the theme of don't lick a cold pole i think i got that message from the movie yeah that's a good but I, miss, I miss some of the other nuances i think yeah i, <laughs> no, I think that's the central thesis <laughs> <laughs> of many movies actually many great yeah. works of literature well, just to go back, so I, uh, the pacing part for me will be a little bit easier at the race that I'm running because it's on a track, and so it's an odd size track. I think it's like 438 meters or something like that per, um, per, uh, lap. per lap. Yeah, but I'll have laps every 438 meters or so, and so, or I'll have splits, so I'll be able to monitor my pace really pretty, uh, pretty, well. pretty quickly on, uh, and so that first lap. I'll, I'll probably, you know, be like a yo-yo a little bit where I'll oscillate around my goal pace and for it. the first few laps. And then I'll I'll settle in and I'll run pretty consistently after How that. How many runners are in the race? Is the lap track crowded? I'm picturing just like this giant crowd on a track and then they're just all like, you know. Yeah, I think there's going to be. Subway kind of thing. Yeah, I think there'll be 40 people oh, okay. on, on the track. Um, not that you can attribute it entirely to this it probably has more to do with the the new super shoes uh that have carbon plates in them but they're uh the 5k and the 10k world record have recently been broken on the track by joshua cheptegei who's a ugandan runner and phenomenal uh but one of the things they had in both of those races that were not in the previous uh, uh record setting races is they have these things now called pace lights and so it's this little light and you could set it to go at whatever pace you want. And there are these lights that are on the inside of the track and they just light up and they go around the track over and over again at the exact pace that you want. And so pacing is really hard and can make or break. Like if you go out even in a 5K, if you go out one or two seconds too fast on that first lap, that can be devastating later on in the race. And so having wow. those pace lights allows not necessarily chepta guy to run the pace that he wants but the pacemakers uh for them to cue into those and not go out too fast or too slow and so his pacing is remarkable on these the 5k and the 10k world records Is he running solo on that um no he had pacemakers that that go through i can't remember how far they went with him but um usually they go about halfway uh, but the race was for him like the pacing was set up for his oh definitely yeah Everything but, was set up for him. Yeah. I mean, because I guess our listeners, because we may have some listeners to this podcast that are that are actually runners and know what they're talking about. I'm obviously <laughs> yeah. representing the every man who hasn't hasn't been in this world as deeply. Um, how many runners will be barefoot in the race? Are you going to be the only one of the forty? <laughs> yeah, prob- you know? <laughs> probably just me. Uh, the, I think that uh, Alex Ramsey's running on Saturday. Uh, I'm running on Friday, and he often races barefoot or in sandals. Um, but it's pretty rare. Yeah. The same hundred mile race, like they run in different. There's, like there's, there's a forty eight hour race, and uh, that's Friday, Saturday, and on the Friday they have one twenty four hour race, and then on Saturday they have another twenty four hour race. Uh, so they run at the same time, yeah. So I'm sorry, we're getting off topic slightly, but it's fascinating. I think, yeah, at least for me, is is um drafting a thing like running right behind somebody, like kind of so their wind resistance. Yeah, that's probably a bigger deal. This is indoors, so it won't be that big of a deal. Actually, it won't be a deal at all. But it is mentally a huge thing where in races, if you have to think constantly about your pace, then it's way, way, way harder. More taxing. It's like playing set over and over and over. Exactly. Kids. 
Yeah. And so if you if you have a pacemaker, then that takes out that whole mental component where you just have to sit on their their shoulder the entire time. You don't have to think about anything. So in college, my friend Nick was uh, going after a 5K PR and our friend Tom was doing a workout. This was at a race and Tom was an exceptional runner. I think he got like six at nationals in cross country and D3. But he was doing a workout. So he was doing two by 5K. And so the first 5K he is like, all right, I'll just run the time that Nick wants to run and Nick can just sit on my shoulder. So Nick didn't have to think about anything. Tom ran perfectly even splits and he dragged him to, I think it was like a 1538 or something like that. And it was this incredible breakthrough PR race for Nick. And he was physically obviously capable of doing that, but the mental, mental component, health. yeah, he, had, he didn't have to think while he was doing it and took care of a huge portion of the effort. By just sitting on Tom's shoulder. <laughs> um, hey, hey, Nick, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> Nick Jurovich, aka Night Train. That's an inspiring story. Way to go, Nick. Yeah. So these are obviously, you know, what you're talking about now are techniques for experienced endurance runners, and you've you've been able to push through your 100 mile race before, and now you're trying to maximize your time and maximize your stress on your body. But what about when you were or early on, or people that are just starting to like run a marathon or run, you know, an ultra marathon. What are some of the techniques you've come across, or maybe that you used early in your career, to just when people felt like quitting, and you know, felt like it was too much, but they pushed through that. Is there? Did you have a particular, um, I don't know, set of thoughts you would you would that would guide you at those times you felt like stopping, or yeah, you heard I from mean, other people what they do. I think a huge part of it is making my goal public. And uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. It's been a really long time since I did a jogathon fundraiser. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I'm doing a fundraiser for a local youth running program called Junior Milers that's run through uh, Run Vermont, which is a, a local nonprofit that puts on some pretty awesome races here. And by doing the jogathon, part of what I'm doing and with this podcast is putting it out there and making it known to other people. So I'm externally. I'm putting my goals external to myself, right? It's really easy if I kept it to myself that I was going for a world record. And then if I, you know, don't get that, then nobody's going to be disappointed. Nobody's going to have, like, I won't be disappointed in anyone other than my inner voice. But by making it public, part of what I'm doing is like, okay, I'm putting it out there. I now have a bunch of people that are going to hold me accountable. Not that people care whether or not I get it, but that <laughs> I care. I, I care. Well, yeah, but I if I bad. don't, if right. I don't get it, you'll you'll. No, I'm not going to be your friend if you don't get it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's a good thing I've got other friends. I might no, I'm, I might just be saying that. But yeah, long. yeah, and so having that like accountability and my coach uh, Sam is this incredible external source of validation. Not that you just want a coach to just say, yeah, you're doing great, but like an external set of like validation um, or source of validation, um, but also like a, an external source of accountability. And so there's that mental component to it there. Of... So it's making it social, basically. It's turning it into a, a social event where there's you're part of this network of people counting. There's people counting on you. Yeah, totally. And, and then also it. that gives you strength somehow. Yeah. Makes, and while I feel strong. Yeah, and while I'm running, the, uh, Jim Miller, who's a master's level runner and just 
this awesome mentor for me in terms of running and has all these crazy stories of doing bizarre things during training. Like he used to wear these long masks. Uh, I think I might've talked about this before, but to like decrease the amount of oxygen he was able to uptake. And it just is awesome. Duct tape his mouth or like just duct tape for like, maybe just every other lap. Yeah. I was thinking we could get a duct tape sponsorship if you did that. Yeah. Well, think about it. And, uh, Oh yeah, so so before one of my marathons, I had a bunch of uh, people over for dinner, and this was at the Vermont City Marathon, and Jim came over, and uh, one of the things he asked me and this other person that was running the next day, Leah Frost, uh, he asked us, he's like, okay, so name three things that you've done to get yourself to this point. And I think that was such like a powerful thing, because it's really simple to figure out, you know, what are three things that you've done? Okay, like I have trained, I've... Right now, I think I have run the last like 125 days or something in a row, uh, averaging almost 14 miles a day. So I've got a ton of training in the belt. I've got a huge amount of support from my coach, Sam Davis, from my wife who watches our son Cedar while I'm out running, uh, from my mom who also helps watch my son so that I can go for runs, my in-laws, from all these different people. Yeah, so I've got this huge support system. And then I've also... Uh, not just run a lot, but I've done the right kind of training that's been guided by uh, the experience and expertise of my coach, uh, but also my experience over the last 30 years of competitive running, right? And so I can then show up on race day and be totally confident that I've done everything that I can possibly do to get to the starting point healthy and competent, right? And there's also like a lot of arrogance and bravado that I love to manifest in my running <laughs> really persona you go out there and you're like yeah i'm the man yeah and so yeah. you know on, on the starting i i'm realistic but like uh, and this is something that my mom taught uh taught me actually my andy my friend that i mentioned earlier we ran together in high school and i was telling her about a race and i was like well i don't really think i can be andy and she like w- she stopped me she right there and she's like don't ever say that Andy's it going might down Andy's going down. She hated Andy. He cut <laughs> no, his hamstring she, she, before the race. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, she's like, don't ever think that, right? You don't know. You might be Andy. And if you, at the starting line, tell yourself that you're not faster than Andy, then you're going to manifest that. And Yeah, you've already lost the race. And so not that I go out and say, okay, I can beat Joshua Sheptegei because that's not realistic. But I know that I can hold my own you know, with some of the best runners, not necessarily in the world at the marathon distance, but certainly in the ultra world. Um, And so I can step to any starting line and be confident that I can hold my own in that race and be, yeah. Now, do you visualize, because some people like when they're, when they are talking about succeeding in something, I've heard this with different professional athletes, they sort of visualize themselves doing something correctly. And they visualize kind of the whole experience and maybe sometimes they visualize like what it would be like to win and, you know, and like have all the cheering and the, the trophy and everything. Whereas I find in my life, if I go there to like the results of beyond what I'm trying to do, it's sort of like, I'm not in the moment as much because I'm like focusing on what it would be like to win and all the glory. And then it kind of interferes with my performance. So do you, what level of visualization of the event do you do beforehand in terms of yeah. there's success that fil- or not? Yeah. There's that Phil Jackson, Chicago Bulls training thing where he gave some, uh, of his players, he was just having them visualize taking free throws and making them, and then some players were actually doing it, and there was no no real difference, <laughs> no real difference in in terms of success. Uh, and so there's a lot to be said for just like, yeah, imagining accomplish something and being able to 
convince yourself. And again, it has to be realistic. Like I couldn't convince myself that I could make a free throw because I can't throw a basketball to save my <laughs> life. But I can I can visualize, you know, running at that pace and feeling good. And then during the race, it can be helpful to think ahead. But in a ultra marathon where I'll be running for, you know, just over 11 hours, uh, hopefully, that's a long time to think ahead. And if you're always just thinking about the end, then it's going to be, it's just too long to think ahead for. So staying and, in the moment is maybe part of it, or maybe putting those words in your mouth. But... No, not at all. I, I like definitely being that. in the moment. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't always write it down, but when I go for runs, one of the things I'm always doing is like bird watching and I keep a list of birds in some of my race reports I have. You know, I saw an osprey and I saw a great crested flycatcher and all these different birds. And I think for me, when I'm running, part of why I love running is because I feel in tune with my surroundings and I feel in tune with my body. And so being aware of what everything feels like in the moment, I don't want to focus on how bad my quads hurt or my Achilles right. tendon or something like that, but focusing on, you know, the slight yeah, changes in all texture right. of the air or like temperature and uh what the birds feel like or sound like and what the yeah trees or feel smell like, like if you reach up and grab one exactly would it, would it help you take because I'm, I'm willing to do this to um bring in a bunch of birds to the indoor stadium different kinds of birds and just release them right before your run so you can be focusing on what they're doing you know, I'm a, I'm actually really nervous about the monotony of it because the I I haven't done an indoor race this long. I've done outdoor races this long, and it's great on like an outdoor track. Like the sun is shifting across the sky, you can right, pay attention to how the shadows are changing, the grass is blowing, and this one is on an indoor place. It's probably going to have you know horrible fluorescent lighting, and they're just going to be blasting music, and it'll probably be like. What about know, this idea? I don't, know. I don't know if this will work, but I could. Start... So birds birds would be much welcomed. I could do the birds and then also i could start the race i could be positioned in a place where you could see me in the stands and i could be dressed as a baby at the start and then gradually i would like dress more like a toddler and then like i uh, love this so school. much and then by the end i would be like a really old man with a cane and then you could see that progression i would love maybe that there'd be like a different bird on my shoulder each time that would be so good please okay. please do I'll that. Work on that yeah so um i'm curious so this is kind of on the topic of visualization when i was uh younger I didn't really like running that much, but I had this, this, this young lady I had a crush on. And so when I was running, sometimes I would picture her like, <laughs> like kind of in the distance or like maybe running in front of me, you know, sort of gambling in front of me. So I'd be like, <laughs> not chasing after her in a creepy way, just sort of like running close yeah, no, to I get say it. hi, you know, what do you mean? Just want to make that clear. <laughs> but, um, and then I remember when I, I, I met a woman who, who got a bronze medal, I, and I think it might have been the marathon in the Olympics. Maybe it was the t 10K. But she was saying that when she's in a race, she like pictures her competitors and like she pictures like hunt, running them down and killing them. Yeah. <laughs> it's a different kind of visualization. But I'm wondering, have you come across other runners or yourself who picture like picture something in front of them that they're running after to sort of maybe tap into some sort of hunt, hunting or chasing instinct that you might have, might or might not have? Yeah, definitely. You're either chasing someone or you're being chased. And that, or both. Maybe or both. Maybe yeah, or both. Right? And either one of those things is either going to be successful or uh, not successful. And so you can imagine either one and whatever propels you forward might be a better one. Okay. Yeah, so I guess we did talk about being chased or chasing last episode, but I'm curious about, is there a danger that would sort of 
fire up this adrenaline that seems like it's part of it is controlling this adrenaline at the start of the race, like not letting yourself be overcome by adrenaline and going too fast or throwing off your kind of control. Yeah. I mean, I, I do most of my training by myself. I love training with other people. It's way easier to run. I did a 21 mile long run on Sunday. And if I had done it by myself, I would have hated it because I was totally exhausted and I would have run way slower, but I ran with some of my friends and it was awesome. And I, I felt good. And it wasn't until I left the group at the very end that like my pace just fell way off and I like stumbled home. Yeah. There, there's a huge benefit to, to running with other people and to like being able to feed off the energy of other people. But one of the things that's, I think good for me about training uh, alone so much and doing all my speed work pretty much by myself is that I don't have to, I've trained myself to not rely on other people right. for so if it's race there, strategies. You can use it. If it's there, and you it's, can use it, but if it's not there, because not probably not when there's not going to be there for 100 straight miles. Cause... Yeah, and it's really hard, especially in long races, not to get sucked into other people's race. And so at uh, Desert Solstice, this 24-hour race that I ran three, a little over three years ago, uh, there was uh, uh, another guy who was running the race and he started like pulling ahead and I just, I kind of freaked out and I shouldn't have because it was maybe six hours into the race. <laughs> and and then I just, I started going faster and I was like, I have to cap, catch up to Isaiah. And I felt like I had to do it all right then rather than just to sticking to my game plan. And had I stuck to my game plan, I probably would have fared a lot better in the long run. Yeah, it's really hard in races. I don't know the other people that are in the race. I don't know that anyone will be going the pace I'm at. And I'm kind of excited about that, that I just get to run my own race own and race. not worry stick about to anyone the plan. else. Yeah. Yeah. Final aspect of uh, your plan before we move into um, yeah. kind of talking about endurance in other cultures in some respects. Um, I think you mentioned at the start of our our season that you had this mantra about Pepsi, like, was it Pepsi-Cola? Oh, yeah, Pepsi-Cola's got the beat. Pepsi-Cola. You get you another still, one? Do you still bring that out ever? And I'm mentioning this because I was thinking of possible Pepsi sponsorship. Um, yeah. <laughs> every now and then I, I stay awake on drives, and Pepsi is a great way to do that. That might that might work in, like, a mile race, but the thought of, of doing that over saying Pepsi-Cola's got the beat for over well, 11 hours Maybe just the final sprint, horrible. you know, like the final, yeah. final 10 seconds. Okay. <laughs> Just curious. Yeah. All right. We don't need that sponsorship. Sponsorship. Yeah. I, I will say, I will say that was really helpful. Like I, I, the more that you train, the more things become intuitively possible. So I'm good now at pacing where if I was on a track, you could say run a mile in five flat and I would be able to run it within three seconds of that on either side. Or if you said run 550, I could do that uh, without getting splits until you know, I got the full mile split. And so I'm really good at pacing. But when I was younger, having something like a mantra where it could be Pepsi Cola's got the beat, and I could say it at a particular cadence, then my stride would sort of sync up with that. And and it would help monitor my pace so that I wasn't going Pepsi Cola's got the beat, Pepsi Cola's got the beat, because I can't like, mentally think that fast and breathe (laughs) in rhythm with that. And so Pepsi Cola's got the beat kind of controlled my cadence and slowed me down to keep an even rhythm so can you do uh, this i don't pacing? do it anymore but yeah oh. can you do the pacing without a watch like are you good enough yeah to that's what like... i'm talking about yeah one of my proudest moments was i was running here in burlington and i saw this table for free 
I uh, I had my watch on me and it was like 14 minutes and 40 seconds or something to that watch. And so then I got back uh, home and I, my roommate was there and she had a car and I didn't. I was like, Emily, I want to go get I want to go get this table. Will you drive me? And she's like, oh. and it was late at night. She's like, I don't want to drive. And I was like, come on, it's only 2.1 miles. And she's like, what do you mean 2.1? I was like, I ran there. It's 2.1 miles. And the only reason she went to pick it up was because she didn't believe. call you and it was 2.1. And we rolled up and right as we got to the table, it clicked to 2.1. And Damn, I was super proud of myself. So, got yeah. beat. Yeah, so I know with my training, like a huge part of the in mental endurance is like being able to endure pain and to have this sort of external understanding that what I'm feeling is temporary and that maybe I'm actually experiencing suffering, which is different from pain. And the best races that I've had have been these sort of out of body experiences where I'm able to almost like observe myself or experience the race as an observer and not as a participant. So I'm observing myself experiencing pain, experiencing fatigue and exhaustion and stuff. And a lot of runners talk about going into some sort of trance-like state or being in the flow or uh, almost hypnotic state. And I know that some of your research and background has looked at that in other cultures, not necessarily in running, but yeah. So I was hoping that, yeah, we could talk about that. Yeah, it was a while ago, but you know, I, my memory is somewhat keen about the things I saw. So when I was doing research for my for my dissertation in anthropology and cultural anthropology, which I believe I did mention, so bringing it back, mm-hmm. I lived in Brazil and I ended up living there three years. And the first year, I was just kind of you know kind of figuring out what was happening there. But I did notice there. there so in Brazil, there's all these Afro-Brazilian religions that are often described as syncretic because they that means they're combining different religious traditions. So they have some elements of Catholicism, but elements from different African religions hmm. and some elements from um, some indigenous traditions in Brazil. So lots of religions mixed together, but what they end up focusing on a lot of the time is spirit possession. So, and there's various forms of these religions, but basically people will dance around and there's drums and these people are singing and then people will sort of like all of a sudden start, start shaking and they'll be, they'll go into kind of trance or they'll be possessed by a particular spirit. And it's kind of ordered, like they'll sing for different spirits <clears throat> in a row. So you'll sing maybe 20 minutes for one kind of spirit and 20 minutes for another kind of spirit. It's, you know, for first time observers, it's sort of fascinating and super weird to see like these kind of elderly women and they're kind of like dancing slowly and then all of a sudden they start shaking. And then, so one of the spirits is called a caboclo, which is sort of like a, <clears throat> it's almost like stereotypical vision of a Native American warrior. And all of a sudden these, these like elderly women will start like hooting and like jumping around like really high and pretending to be jumping, you know, shooting a bow and arrow. And then they'll, they'll come into the center and sort of sing their song and everyone will sing along with them. And maybe another person will get possessed and they'll kind of lead the next song. And then the next moment, you know, they might be possessed by this kind of like, there's a, one of the main spirits are these cowboy spirits. So they'll sort of be pretending to be, cowboys and then there'd be this these ex-prostitute sort of spirits they were prostitutes when they were alive and they'll be sort of like tending to smoke and flirting with everyone so their body language is changing dramatically but the energy that they're bringing to each of these spirits is like incredible it's like these old women that can barely walk sometimes or just leaping around and huh and then just acting kind of fabulously like these other characters if you think of them as doing it consciously but the story that the mediums 
say is that they, they don't really remember. They sort of go into trance. The spirit kind of takes over their body and kind of uses their body for a while and then kind of leaves them. And so they don't really remember that much afterwards. Although some of the more experienced mediums talk about it, like you were saying, they're sort of an observer. They can sort of see themselves from outside in this trance state, but they're, they're not really fully in control of it, but they can kind of like remember a bit of it afterwards. So um, what this has to do with endurance, I mean, not only is it like this, obviously like physical transformation of energy that they have, but so in many of the Afro-Brazilian religions, they have to go, undergo this long initiation and sometimes it's a week, but sometimes it's like a month or two months that they have to be in this little room. They can't really leave the room. They don't get to eat that much. And the traditional way that they handle that um, to endure that is there are these child spirits that they learn to get possessed by. And the child spirits just kind of play and like kind of mutter and they're sort of happy all the time. So they learn to, in these periods of distress, have this child spirit come down and just kind of like the time passes quickly. They don't really remember it that well. They're able to endure not sleeping that well, not getting that much food, not being able to move around that much. And sometimes, you know, people will stop in and give them toys and they'll kind of play with their candy, but they're able in this kind of altered state of consciousness to endure these privations that would be much more difficult for them if they weren't in trance or if they weren't possessed. And kind of get similar that the length of the ritual sometimes they start at eight, nine o'clock at night and go till five or six in the morning. And these people have been working all day, sometimes like working out in like sugarcane fields all day. And they're yeah. totally tired when it starts, but sort of energy of the possession and trance experience helps them just like find this extra level of energy. So, and, yeah. So first of all, if you have any questions. Yeah. What are the elements that are contributory to the trance state? Right. So, so it seems like leads them there's... into the trance state or what? Um, yes, sort of if you were to try and break it down and be able to like synthesize from different experiences that might be similar to that induce a trance state. So is like some rhythmic drumming important? Is it important that there are other people around? Is there an element that like if you believe that you will go into a trance state, you're more likely to go into a trance state? What are sort of the elements that make this sort of thing possible right so there's kind of all of that so in most of the traditions, drugs there's, could there are some traditions that or they fasting use, they use drugs or fasting but the most of the afro-brazilian religions do not have any kind of drug element um well they sometimes the spirits drink a lot of alcohol and the pres presumption is that they're not drunk after they are not possessed and that's one of the signs that it was a true possession but but the other elements you mentioned are definitely there so there's drumming it kind of goes along and the drummers are considered to be essential that leading people like calling down the spirits and there's these songs there's lots of people there's the mediums dancing in a circle but there's usually like typically there'd be like 20 mediums dancing in a circle but maybe 40 or 50 people watching some of them are singing along with the songs and then there's just the the experience of other people going in the trance so a lot of times people will um come to these ceremonies out of curiosity and maybe they'll watch for a year or two other people getting possessed and then all of a sudden one night they'll feel kind of like dizzy or something, start stumbling around. And one of the ideas is the first, a lot of times the first year or two, someone is possessed. So that's a sign that they're a medium and that their body's kind of open and that they're, they're kind of open to the spirits coming down, but they're not able to control that for a year or two. So they'll sort of like slowly be initiated in and they'll slowly kind of learn to receive their spirit in a way that the spirit acts like a spirit as opposed to just kind of staggers around like a drunk person. For most of the mediums in, in the Afro religion, Afro-Brazilian religions, um, at least the ones I was studying, are largely religions for poorer folks. And a lot of them, 
don't necessarily want to be in the religions because they're kind of stigmatized. One of the main spirits are these kind of like little bit of devil types, and like kind of yeah. like rogue, kind of thieves, but they've, they've turned good and they, they fight illness and they will fight for you. But um, technically, maybe they sort of live in hell and they come from there and they're trying to atone for some bad things they did. And so some of the Pentecostal religions see them as like devil worship and they hmm. are bringing devils into the world. So they basically talk about these religions as being hor horrible things that are causing sin and suffering on, on earth. So a lot of the, the people in the religion have family members who believe that these religions are bad and they don't necessarily want to go into it, but they've been sick and they've been unable to get well and they've had these mysterious aches and pains and they'll eventually go to one of these centers and the head medium will say like, you need to receive these spirits. These spirits are trying to come come down and you're resisting it and that's what's making you sick and so they'll sort of give it a shot and then they get better hmm. so it, there seems to be this kind of like what sends them in the trance usually is the whole experience of there's music there's drumming there's lots of people there's this expectation that some people are going to get possessed there's this kind of unusual energy in the air it's late at night there's this kind of like you know some of the spirits are sort of saying forbidden things or this sort of like sense that um, norms are being broken in a way it's a sort of like magical zone but it also seems to be effective because the religions seem to help the mediums deal with whatever problems they're having. And then the spirits themselves treat other people and those people a lot of times get better. So there's this kind of like functional side to why people stay in the religion. So I guess mm. you'll come, you know, you come for the music and the trance, you stay because it makes you better. Yeah. And well, so, I don't, I don't want to dismiss it as uh, a placebo, but uh, you know, placebo effects are real, right? So if like you believe something that can heal you, you have, this this mental this belief in what you're doing being efficacious at healing actually makes what you're doing efficacious at healing right so right and it may be i mean the question is like is it a different level of experience so like an actor can kind of like play a role and they're sort of consciously in control of it and so taking a, a placebo somebody saying like you're going to get better if you take this pill and you sort of believe that and you get better but is it sort of qualitatively different to kind of like go into trance and go into this alter alternate state of consciousness the ability the things that your body can do when it's in trance might be different from the things your body can do when it's just sort of a placebo and it's yeah passive um, you're not really entering into this trance state and so one of the interesting things about trance religions or spirit possession religions is like something like 99 percent of I don't know how they calculated that number. World religions had a trance component or a spirit possession mm -hmm. component, but a lot of the religions that came to the United States did not because the sort of kind of Puritan pilgrims, partly that kind of tradition really believed any kind of trance was devil, devil possession by the devil and needed to be exercised. So that was stamped out. Like anything that resembled possession was considered to be not allowed, unequivocally bad and should not be tolerated. And so the religion yeah. sort of, they're speaking in tongues and so forth and Pentecostal religions in the United States. But in terms of like cultivating, like one thing that makes the Brazilian religious a little different is it's asking the spirits to come down. And a lot of traditions, the spirits are kind of bad and then they have to be kind of expelled because they're making you sick. But what many religions have is sort of a shaman or shaman type figure that'll like kind of go into trance and then sort of become wise and heal people. But in Brazil, it's more collective. It's like these hmm. group of people receiving these groups of spirits and it's encouraged. And so it's a little more um, collective and widespread than other religious traditions. But it's it's really shocking to watch these people just totally change their body language and their voices and the way they act. And it can be really high energy, right? Like their their eyes and their, their energy and their voices. Um, you know, picture like a great actor who just totally becomes a role in a way that's very high energy. Like that's going on with all these 
just everyone who's at these centers. Yeah. Um, so I mean, did you go ahead? Were you always an observer, or did you participate ever? Well, one thing I wanted to know is like why I was there because they didn't really. In anthropology isn't really a thing in these small villages. So like, what do you? You really want to set up your own center, right? Like when you go home, you want to set up your own. So I was like, no, no, I just want to tell people about you guys. And they're like, come on. And then they'd be like, well, what about you? Are you a medium? So they would almost always like play the drums for me and try to figure out if I could get possessed. But in most of the traditions, there's this idea that like one out of four or one out of five people are mediums and the rest are not. That they're mm. like sort of not receptive enough and their bodies aren't open enough. And so they would play for me a little bit and they'd be like, oh yeah, you're probably not a medium. Hmm. So that was better for me. It would have been bad if I'd been like going the trance because <laughs> if you're also, if you, once you get possessed and one person's centered, like you're supposed to like belong to the head medium there and they train you and you have to be initiated there and you can't visit different ones. So they have several people in the religions that don't go in the trance, like the drummers. It would be bad if the drummers went in the trance because they're responsible yeah. for keeping the drumming going. So it's a pretty normal thing for them to have people that can't go in the trance and they just classify me like that. And there are, there are cases of anthropologists going down there to study this religion and then they end up going in trance and then they get initiated and they, they kind of stop their study, but they like become members of the religion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, there's also all these things that happen. They, so there's accusations of like, are you faking or not? And so different centers will accuse other religious centers of like, oh, they're just, they're just faking. They're pretending to be possessed. And so to prove that they're authentic, there are these series of things that, that the spirits would traditionally do and they would sort of like eat these poisonous leaves or they would like set things on fire and walk around on like hot coals or walk around the fire. And th that's sort of done in some other religious traditions around the world. And it seemed to be, you know, physically something was going on where they didn't seem to be affected by the things they were eating. They didn't seem to be burned like they should have been by the hot substances they were walking upon. So, you know, it seems possible that something physiologically is going on when people enter into this trance state, which, which may or may not be something that humans are capable of, but our culture has sort of stamped out in the, mm. in sort of American Western culture, but that, you know, many people still maybe, maybe access that through something like hypnosis or meditation. They can go into this or maybe long distance running can access this kind of state. And what the thing I noticed maybe the most is that especially the, the spirit, certain spirits would become famous is that religions I studied, the traditions I studied, the spirits would talk. So they would talk to people and some of them, they were particularly wise at giving advice and helping people out would like become prominent. They become famous and they would like be the leader of a center. And they just seemed so, you know, it's like they were accessing this wisdom that, that maybe their mediums didn't have normally. They were like going yeah. into this like heightened state of alertness. And some of the things they said to me, I thought were really, really, really wise and thoughtful. So, you know, potentially this is a, a human ability that we all, all potentially have maybe, or some of us have to go into this altered state of trance that, um, that might help us might might help with certain kinds of endurance, but that we've kind of closed ourselves off to in some ways in the, in America or in the West. Yeah, I was I went to some workshops with this woman Jan Fraser who, if I don't know if she's like enlightened or awakened uh, or how she would refer to herself, but she wrote this book when fear falls away, and a, a lot of what she talks about is overcoming these in, insurmountable personal tragedies that then sort of reconstituting her own framework for understanding those made those seem silly or insignificant and have her like a, a totally different perspective and understanding and experience of life by being free of fear. And so she talks about, you know, pain and suffering. And, and so at this time, this is maybe like eight, nine years ago, 
I was really interested in this idea of what's the difference between pain and suffering. And I was working with this group of kids and I walked by and there were these two kids. They were uh, Matt and Huck and they were standing next to this tree. And I don't know what they were doing, but they were just like knocking the tree repeatedly with these sticks and just kind of in this like, I'm saying trance because you were just talking about trances, but they were just like, fixated on this task for no apparent reason and i was talking (laughs) (laughs) yeah and i was talking to my friend about pain and suffering and we were like trying to pin down what the difference was and i was like hey matt what's the difference between pain and suffering and he just kind of looked over at me and he was still knocking the tree and he was like pain you feel in the body suffering you feel in your mind and then he just (laughs) went right back yeah and i was like that's that's like the truth about the oracle yeah and so i that's just, you know, stuck with me so much. And there are different models. How old was for... this kid? I'm picturing like three years old and then saying it in this deep voice. Uh, yeah, uh, 10. He probably, he was 10. He probably didn't have okay. that deep of voice at the time. But there, you know, there are these uh, different models for trying to understand like where pain is experienced. And there are some models that suggest that maybe your brain is actually creating pain and then interpreting pain. So yeah, there's a physiological, like you build up lactate or you have micro tears in your muscles or you have a bone bruise or something like that. But your brain is interpreting that as pain. And what you can either do is you can fixate on that pain or you can say, this is an experience that I'm having and that's all that it is, right? And if you fixate on it, that pain can then become suffering and become this debilitating thing. And so I think about that a lot with my running where when things start to get hard, what I try and reinforce in maybe like a meditative type of process while I'm running is like, this is an experience that I'm having and that's all that it is. And if I, what we talked about earlier and I think the first episode for the season was this central governor model where your brain is constantly trying to shut down your body from doing damage to itself or shut down the body before it can do damage to itself. And so if you can just say, that's an experience that I'm having, my body actually isn't on the, the precipice. Like, the precipice. Okay, keep going. Yeah. yeah. And it becomes a lot easier to endure that pain so that it doesn't become suffering in a debilitating type of way. Yeah, I've heard that kind of approach in different kinds of meditation, just like experience your emotions. This is an experience, kind of step outside of it. Um, and that seems like it would be incredibly useful in endurance running. It's a little different from, you know, the, the people that were the spirit mediums that I was with, it was more entering into this alternate state where they, they could totally. endure. But then when they came out of it, you know, they wouldn't be like necessarily these enlightened, this you know, total enlightenment where like, I don't feel pain. I don't feel suffering. You know, I'm at peace with, yeah. my, you know, they still had a lot of problems they had to deal with, but, yeah. but they had this access to this other state. And sometimes they would occasionally in their real life outside of the ceremonial context, especially it's mostly women in the religions. And sometimes if um, their husbands were acting bad or like maybe threatening to beat them, they would have these spirits that would come down and <laughs> go crazy. And so the husbands were kind of afraid, afraid of that, but it would happen to them under extreme stress. Their spirit would kind of come down and protect them. So yeah. they had a sort of like backup protector. I mean, they had a series of spirits, but there was one that would be kind of like their, their spirit you know, spiritu bravo, their like kind of angry spirit that would kind of protect them and kind of go, go nuts and that others were a little bit afraid of. So yeah. I don't know. I'm not saying that's what you should do in the center mile race. <laughs> it's like full on be taken over by an angry spirit for the last 10 miles. But, you know, it might be an option for the future once you practice yeah. it a bit. 
Yeah, I mean, something strange definitely happens in these long endurance events where you get to this point where there's sort of this dissolution of self and you know it's like it's pretty different from what your experience where it's like a pretty raucous <laughs> like rhythmic Sometimes. experience that you're some of the, i mean some of the traditions in brazil are very quiet there's this sort of european it's called spiritism or cardicismo and people just sort of gather around this table and they're all dressed in white and it's very quiet and then one person like maybe rings a bell like ding and then they all just go into their little quiet trances so there's, yeah. there's all kinds of entrances into that state in Brazil, at least. Yeah, that's uh, really cool. But I, yeah, I mean, I feel something. I don't know if it's the same as what you're describing, but like towards the end of these races where there's sort of this, you know, I've been training for months and even years for this experience. And so then you get into it and there's a huge emotional weight and there's sort of like, I don't want to draw too many parallels between running and, and those uh, experiences that you're describing, but like your body is constantly bouncing up and down and sort of there's this rhythmic drumming and right. ideally I'm running roughly the same pace. And so it's like over and over and over again. And there's this other part of your brain that can't perform higher functioning while you're running. And so your thoughts become really repetitive and after some of these longer runs that I've done uh, spanning, you know, several hours to many, many hours, you get into this like altered mind state. That's I think part of why this stuff is really compelling. Like I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, someone said to me a few years ago, like, you don't look like you're having fun when you're running. <laughs> Cause I often have a very serious yeah, face. Resting angry face. Resting serious yeah. face. But I'm like, it doesn't need face. Yeah, for me, it doesn't need to be fun. It needs to be interesting. And it, it, coming into that that state at the end of this run, like it induces this altered mind space where it's not something that I experience in my normal daily life. Uh, and it is really surreal. And often in these longer events, I'll have like these deeper epiphanies that will stay with me beyond that one moment of the experience of that. Yeah, there's something really powerful and, and bizarre. And so I, I think, you know, maybe it's a, a coping mechanism on some level while you're running, if you're in this altered mind space so that you're not suffering, you're not cued into all of the aches and pains that you're feeling. But yeah, there's something beautiful and euphoric that that happens uh, for me towards the end of these races. Wow. And then there's a huge rush of endorphins in the last like half mile or several miles where you know that you've done it. And then you just ride this wave of bliss until you cross the finish line. <laughs> wow. And then all that just rushes away and you're just exhausted. And you're and totally exhausted. You just flop on the ground. Broken. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little like that with the mediums at the end of the ceremony. They seem like so happy, but they're also so exhausted. Yeah. And yeah, But I mean, I think the idea is that in this altered state, whatever it is, and the, their minds also seem to be capable of achieving these these insights that are kind of like slightly beyond what their normal consciousness is, kind of openness or different way of thinking maybe is possible. I guess there's, so some researchers tried to compare hypnosis, which is sort of something we do have in the West with spirit possession and then trance. And I don't know, are, are, do any long distance runners try hypnosis, like hypnotize themselves into you know, you are a great runner. You will just keep, you'll run like a gazelle for a hundred miles. You are a gazelle. <laughs> Go out and do that. Is that a uh, technique at all? Hypnotism? I don't know. I don't know any, but there are definitely, I'm sure there are people. There is a 
cult in Colorado that's like this weird sex ultra marathon. Ultra marathon cult. sex cult. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They probably do stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. We don't need to dwell on them. Yeah. No. Bad publicity. It's going to cost yeah. our sponsorships. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I guess to me it brings up, and we don't really have time to go into this, of course, but, you know, we are partly animals and they're, you know, all of these incredible feats of endurance in the animal world, bird migrations, and, you know, whatever, wolves running for decades at a time. But, you know, I, I wonder sometime after hanging hang out with these religions for a long time, if, if the animals also can enter into some sort of trance type state, if that's what's going on with them mentally, or if it's totally different for them. Um, and yeah. that may be a hard thing to determine. There are like sort of brain scans of people in trance and hypnotized, but I don't know how really reliable those are. Yeah, so, I, d- I don't know. You have any thoughts on animals and endurance at the end here, since we are part animal? Yeah, I mean, I I think I haven't found any studies on it, but uh, I, you know, there there definitely there must be a component to it. I mean, like with geese, if a goose is injured while it's in migration, or if it gets fatigued or whatever, and it has to stop, there will be one other goose at least that'll stop with it. And then they'll continue their migration later. Um, but there are, you know, I was talking about with like Joshua Chepta guy of running in a pack makes it easier. Right. And part of it is like a mechanical thing where if you have someone that's breaking the wind for you right, so that drafting. you you can draft. And that's a huge physical, like that's a physics problem. Um, but there's also the mental component that we talked about of like being having somebody else pace for you. And so I imagine with the geese that there's a huge mental social component where I, you know, we can't get into the mind state of a goose, but that it is easier to make these long, long distance migrations by having other individuals around you that are leading the way. One of the most interesting things that I have heard from was someone talking about, I can't remember who it was. uh, They were talking about how when you get beat in a race, the only thing that's showing you is what's possible. And I love that way of thinking about like a failure as if it's relative to someone else's success is that it's showing you what is physically possible as a human being. And so if you're a goose and you're in migration and there's a goose in front of you, it shows you it's possible that you can fly <laughs> to right there. I doubt that's what they're thinking. I don't know. I mean, what I've heard is that they don't know why geese honk um, when they fly. And... It seems like it would just be extra energy that they should be saving for migration, but that it must have something to do, they think. Or at least the article I read that, you know, the communication, like spurring them on somehow, the social component to endurance was, the honking was helping with that. Yeah. You can do I it. Was... You can do it. Honk, honk. I'm doing it. Are you doing it? Yeah, I'm doing it. We're doing it too. I was watching a, or I went snorkeling today and I was, uh, what, there were a bunch of small mouths. Don't try to honk while snorkeling. So no, it's really tough. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually, uh, I, so I was looking for smallmouth and largemouth bass nests, and it's really easy to find. And um, uh, I was, I try, I like saw one, and then I was leaving. I was like, okay, you're, you're all right now. I'm leaving, and I like try to say it out loud through my snorkel, and it was just, it was, yeah, a big failure. <laughs> you did try to hunt. I did. But for them, they, you know, they'll be on the nest two or three weeks and they are eating, but very, very little. This is mostly the, the, or the males that are on the nest. And after that, they have this recuperation phase where they eat very little. Well, it's actually a short recuperation phase where they eat very little and they just 
potentially who knows what's going on in a fish's mind it, but they're just recuperating maybe mentally and from the physical coming out of trance, and mental coming out of their fish trance maybe yeah because they just uh, i'll link to a video that i took a time lapse of a bass on a nest and it just spins around in circles constantly monitoring wow. for things that are like crayfish or whatever that might be nest predators and then at the end of it it's like oh my god i'm i'm spent and so they just like do nothing and then after that then they just eat voraciously and that's when it's easiest to fish for them but yeah so it's really hard i think to to get in the mindset of animals and to really understand we can talk about the physiological or yeah the physiological side of endurance which we did last episode but that mental piece i think is really tough to it's tough to pinpoint in humans and much tougher to pinpoint in animals it's interesting the spinning i forgot to mention that it's a big part of the um, at least the traditions I was looking at in Brazil, which were sort of a combination for anyone who knows about Brazil. Um, there's a religion, Candomblé, and a religion, Banda, and it's sort of, they're combined a lot of times. But anyway, in the places where I was, the mediums would spin around a lot at the, in the dancing. And then when the spirit yeah. would come, it would spin around a lot. Probably being a little bit dizzy helps you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't recommend, though, to our listeners just spinning around like a dervish until you visit <laughs> yeah. my spirit, especially, yeah. I mean that's one of the earliest traffic. that's one of the earliest experiences that any human has of an altered mind state is kids spinning in circles. Yeah. I read this this book about boys rites of passages around the world and they were talking about that as sort of this universal experience that you know humans want altered mind states and if they're not given that in a rite of passage, they will seek those out on their own. And so it's like puffing <laughs> glue that. or yeah, <laughs> or something like that. Um, but they were talking about like, yeah, spinning in circles just alters your mind state. And so kids do that. And same yeah. with like holding your breath. Yeah, it's, it does seem like kids sort of seek that out for, if, I mean, at least when I was a kid, just the novelty of it all. I mean, of course, yeah. you know, we go to sleep every night. We're in this altered state of consciousness from all yeah. of us all the time. So it's clearly a part of our lives, but it's interesting to think that maybe our culture has suppressed this ability that we would otherwise have developed a bit more fully yeah. um, entering into, and maybe <laughs> I doubt that's why, you know, people do drugs in our country. I don't, I don't know if people do drugs in the U.S. more than other countries. I think that's unrelated, but it is what you're saying. I think there's something to people are seeking altered state of consciousnesses in different, different ways, maybe, maybe yeah. all around the world, but especially I'm noticing here. So, well, we could probably talk a long time about this, but we don't want to test our readers' endurance. And um, I mean, our <laughs> listeners or anyone who's reading this that's, you know, voice the text. And uh, <laughs> he has a world record to break. So he needs his rest. That's right. So perhaps we should. Um, and is this the end of our season on endurance? That's right. Is this our, so now how can our listeners follow follow your race? Is that going to be in the show notes so they can we can do a wrap up? I mean, like after you're done with the race, we can come back to it. Yeah, the race is called Six Days in the Dome, and I think they have a live stream, uh, or at least live runner tracking, so you can follow on there. Um, I'll post something on the show notes uh, to be able to watch that. And then we'll probably do a race recap afterwards. That'll be oh, a perfect. short little... I mean, it'll probably be in the news when I really sell the birds and I'm dressed up like an old man. So yeah, definitely. <laughs> you'll yeah. just watch it on CNN or something. But... <laughs> yeah. the best of luck to you. We're all cheering for you. I want to make sure you know that... Hey, thanks, Glenn. You've got the social component from... Me and my household, all my friends, awesome. and even I've enlisted some of my enemies to cheer for you. So. Well, I'll be thinking about you for 11 straight hours. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. That means a lot. <laughs> all right. Well, best of luck. 
All right, thanks. To you listeners, cheer Teague on, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to the recap. All right, we'll see you on the other side. All right, bye-bye. Bye. Oof, I've got butterflies already just thinking about that race. I can't wait to tow the line out in Milwaukee this Friday, June 18th. If you want to support Junior Milers, the program I talked about at the start of the episode, definitely click on the link in the show notes. Otherwise, stay tuned for my race report. I'll release this shortly after the race. Glenn and I will talk about how it went, lessons learned, and all that. Until then, if you're digging the podcast, we'd greatly appreciate a review over on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast. You can also head on over to crowspath.org podcast to listen to past seasons and get in touch with us through the Woodland Message Board. Here you can ask us questions, suggest topics, and post fake ads or read on air. All right, naturalists, that's it for now. We'll see you next time on The Single Acorn.